0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Menz.
1: Bail is refused. You're out of order! If
2: it pleases the court. To adopt this
3: affirmation, please say the words, I do.
1: I do. Nothing further from this. Point. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed.
3: Welcome to the Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns.
1: This episode is a special
3: live recording. The Wigs were invited to attend the Australian Criminal Law Conference 2023 in Byron Bay. Now, Emmanuel and myself were unfortunately unavailable, so Felicity and Stephen teamed up with guest week, New South Wales public defender Paul Cody, to record the episode before an audience of lawyers from across Australia. The topic is reform of public criminal prosecutions in Australia, the Sofronoff Inquiry and its aftermath. The conference was hosted by Hugo Law, and the keynote speaker was Justice Edelman of the High Court of Australia. A big thank you to Hugo Law, in particular, Karen Espinar for reaching out with the invitation. The conference was a big success and the Whigs encouraged listeners to consider the conference in future years. A big thanks also to Paul Cody for being a guest Whig. Now here's a bit about Paul. He began his legal career as a commercial solicitor at Clayton Oots, but turned to criminal law after an internship with the Innocence Project in New Orleans. He has been at the New South Wales Bar since 2008 and was appointed a public defender in 2018.
0: Uh, Yeah, so look, as the title suggests, we're going to talk about um, the inquiry that I suspect a few people in the room have probably heard of, the recent ACT inquiry into the criminal justice system that, like the trial that it was inquiring into, got a lot of national media. The inquiry, as people probably know, was sparked by uh, the DPP of the ACT, Shane Drumgold's Uh, allegations, I suppose, that there uh, had been political interference in the investigation of the Brittany Higgins allegation. And a large part of the inquiry uh, report uh, is dedicated to examining that allegation. And ultimately, that allegation was not found to be sustained. Um, The inquiry found, uh, in fact, that the police had conducted themselves professionally and not been subject to uh, any political interference. The probably more interesting thing about the inquiry is the way that it put a criminal trial, a sexual assault allegation, really under the microscope. And I think that's probably, in part, what sparked the real interest among criminal lawyers in it. Because while it was obviously a high-profile and sensational allegation, an allegation of sexual assault occurring in a minister's office, I think in many ways it was very similar to sexual assault trials that take place across Australia every week. And the thing that I think is really interesting about the inquiry is the way that it lifted the veil on the operation of the criminal justice system and examined uh, everything from investigation to charge, uh, then to all the machinations that occur between parties to criminal litigation and look closely uh, at the propriety of certain actions. And so we wanted to talk about the things uh, that Mr Sofronoff examined uh, and made findings on uh, in terms of those matters. And uh, to start that, I might hand over to Paul firstly to talk about what the inquiry examined in terms of the decision to charge Mr Lehrman and what was the applicable standard to charge and what Sofronoff found in relation to the propriety of that charging decision. Um,
3: Thanks Stephen and Felicity for having me. Um, I think my reading of the Sofronoff Report would be common to almost everyone's here. It reminded me of a very famous gig that happened in Melbourne in 1995, Pearl Jam at the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl. And what happened at that gig was that 5,000 people got tickets and there were 3,000 people on the outskirts who didn't get tickets but pushed their way in. And if you speak to anyone in Melbourne now, with a population of close to 3 million people, almost all of them claim to have been at that Pearl Jam gig. (laughs) And in a similar way, the Sofronoff Report is used by many people to justify many things. And it's very clear to me that on a quick reading of it, or even a slow reading of it, it is a beautiful piece of writing. And it does indeed lift the lid on both the investigative stage by police and also the decision to charge the reason I use that Pearl Jam example is that it's quite clear to me that on reading the Sofronoff report that many of the people who claim to have read it have not in fact done so. (laughs) Because if they had, they wouldn't be sending me emails asking me what my legitimate forensic purpose was for a particular subpoena. And they wouldn't also be maintaining claims of privilege over communications between police and members of the DPP. Obviously, issues of privilege do arise, but not in a blanket way in which many of those practitioners um, seem to allege. And that's a topic is gonna to take a little bit further. But um, I have to admit, as a New South Welshman, I didn't know much about Mr Sofronov, KC. Um, but what I have learned is that people from Queensland hold him very close to their hearts and so I'll tread extremely lightly. Uh, I did just want to mention that he has an incredibly esteemed career. He was the Solicitor General of Queensland, I think, for almost 10 years and the President of the Court of Appeal. And I read an article last night in preparing for this by Justices McHugh and Kirby, and they speak about both written and oral advocacy. And Justice Kirby, in particular, spoke about the opening address that Mr... Sofronoff gave to the High Court in the WIC people and Queensland, against Queensland. And in three paragraphs, Justice Kirby stated that Mr Sofronoff completely changed his mind in relation to a claim for native title. And those three paragraphs I've read by Mr Sofronoff are indeed beautiful oral advocacy. And what it does is that once I understood that larger framework, It made it very clear as to why this is an incredibly readable uh, and digestible piece um, of writing and it does in fact lift the lid very clearly uh, on the investigative process which I hadn't actually um, come to understand because I've never worked for the police or I've never worked for the DPP. Um, So let me just take you, with that sort of Pearl Jam and Sofronov background to it, can I just actually tell you what's in the report so you... When you do read it, um, that um, you'll have a, a greater understanding of what's to come. Part two, part one is really just about the background facts to the investigation. Part two is where the meat uh, really starts, and this is talking about the AFP or really the ACT Police investigation, and it sets out the factual um, process or steps that the ACT Police took in their investigation, and what the report does, you know really concise and powerful way is that it manages to capture the increasing ratcheting up of pressure on the police by two things, not political interference but in fact media scrutiny was the first one but the second one was, was just as powerful and that was what the AFP police officers perceived the media scrutiny to be. So those two elements were placing pressure on the AFP officers. And what it eventually did was it highlighted a significant fault line that sat within the AFP officers' knowledge of when to charge someone. Now, this is relevant to the ACT and the Section 26 deals with, the Magistrates Court Act deals with charging and it states that an information may be laid where a person has committed or is suspected of having committed an indictable offence. And what Mr Sofronoff found that there was no greater guidance given to police officers, no internal guideline about how they might deal with that particular section. And so what he did was he examined all 16 AFP officers who had something to do with either the factual analysis or the uh, laying of the charge. Of those 16 officers, all of them held different views about that threshold question and how it was to be interpreted. So just to give you uh, an example, section 26, and there are equivalent sections in each state Criminal Procedure Act. Remember it is where a person has committed or is suspected of having committed an indictable offence. These were the tests that the officers believed that they should be imposing, that there was a reasonable belief in guilt, that there was a reasonable prospect of conviction, a reasonable honest belief, of obtaining a conviction and so on. So of the 16 officers that were examined, um, all 16 had a different view about what test they should be applying. Now, um, he reminded the reader and those officers in quite a kind way that both with police officers and prosecutors, their actual belief has no role to play in a decision to charge someone. And it's that the pressure from those two external influences, the media and the AFP officers' belief of what the media were looking at, and that internal difficulty that there was no further guidance given to AFP officers meant that there was a real... What that caused was a rupture in the relationship between the AFP officers and the
0: charging decision that was made by the ODPP. So... So, Paul, that's in a context where the pretty firm view of the AFP was that Lambin should not have been charged, right?
3: That was their subjective belief, but Mr Sofronoff then went through and in a very pithy and detailed way set out what the basis of that opinion was and also set out why they were entitled to hold that view, but their personal views as to whether a prosecution should proceed or not, personally as to whether an offence had committed were effectively irrelevant.
2: And I yep. think Sofranoff missed the mark a bit there. I mean, the report's got really excellent things um, to take from it and we'll, we'll discuss some of the other issues. But on this particular issue of the threshold to charge, um, it seemed surprising to me that um, Mr Sofronoff didn't refer to any of the case law that comes from the common law tort of malicious prosecution about what um, is necessary for uh, a charge to be brought or the converse position where you can successfully sue um, for malicious prosecution.
0: So he found that the applicable test was that stated in the DPP policy, right, yeah. there had to be reasonable prospects of conviction, as well as public interest? That's
2: right. Yeah. He confined his analysis to those two links of what's widely part of DPP policies around the country, but...
0: Which is not really a legal test, is it? Like, it's a policy that the executive has and there's an independent officer who obviously applies it. Mm. But it's not strictly law, is it? I mean, it's an executive policy that there must be reasonable prospects.
2: And indeed, not all prosecutions have have involvement from a DPP. Mm. So that policy, um, in many cases, doesn't apply. Should I just quickly run through the common law test on malicious prosecution?
0: Yeah, I think so, because in the submissions to the inquiry, it was put that that was the test, That's right. So
2: ACT policing, their submissions, for example, was that ACT policing's position is that the charging threshold should cohere with the elements of the tort of malicious prosecution as applied in the ACT's case law, which, broadly speaking, for this purpose, is the notion of reasonable and probable cause. But that is broken down into um, three main aspects. Um, One, the officer must believe the information in their their possession to be true. Information must reasonably point to the guilt of the accused. So there's a subjective, objective test engaged. And the officer must believe that the accused is so likely to be guilty of the offence that on general grounds of justice a charge is warranted. And so the common law test does really engage with this um, issue of subjective belief. And um, although on a malicious prosecution claim an officer might say that they subjectively believe, um, you can then get up on a failure of the objective test because it wasn't reasonable. But if um, you can show in the evidence that the subjective state of mind wasn 't there on behalf of the charging officer, then you tick that box on the tort so so if I'm reasonable a bit surprised.
0: yeah so if reasonable and probable cause is the legal test that has to be applied because it 's a tort if you don 't have that, then what 's the relationship between that and a test of reasonable prospects of success, as stated in the policy
2: mm.
0: like is one higher than the other, do you think or are they just different or? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, Uh, does reasonable prospects mean probably?
0: I mean, I would have thought that in the context of it being a prosecution policy, which is full of references to this idea of restraint, that you don't prosecute all matters, that you only prosecute when it's in the public interest, in the context of a policy that expressly states that there will be circumstances where you've got a good chance of conviction but you won't prosecute. And in a context where it's a tort if you don't have reasonable probable cause, that reasonable prospects of success has to be a higher test, right? That's a protection for the citizen, mm. that you won't be prosecuted unless that test is satisfied. Mm. So it just seems odd in this analysis of what's the test to be applied in the ACT to charge and in the context of submissions having been made, that it doesn't make a finding on, on how that reasonable and probable cause test sort of works in. Mm.
2: Yeah, I was really surprised by the absence of it. And he had submissions from Mr Drumgold from ACT policing setting out the authorities on malicious prosecution and the elements and so on. Yeah,
3: so it's, it's probably more curious in that he had access to Series 5, Episode 2 of your podcast, in
0: which he <laughs> clearly set out the test um, that perhaps he missed. I'm sure I'm he's might. a very busy man. Uh, I might just finish
3: my, my section yeah. very briefly. In, in Sections, Chapters 2 and 3, uh, Mr Sofranoff sets out in great detail the investigative steps that the AFP officers took, the internal reviews that they took of their own um, case and that included a very detailed assessment of what they believed to be the complainant's credibility and that I think whilst it didn't come in the findings, Mr. Sofronop's dissection of that assessment is highly relevant to me as a practitioner and what it showed was to me is that issues of credibility are downplayed in any type of assessment in relation to charging because that can be answered by the defence, and really it's not a police officer or perhaps a prosecutor. By the complainant, do you mean? That's
0: right.
3: Yeah. Uh, or by the defence. Um, uh, but really it's not for a police officer or a prosecutor when they're considering whether to charge to enter into a detailed
0: assessment of a complainant's credibility. See, that's a real problem, I reckon. And I reckon that sort of analysis that's in there is a symptom of not engaging with this reasonable and probable cause thing. Because reasonable and probable cause has got a subjective element, right? You've got to form a belief, really, as to guilt on a certain standard. If you've got to... I mean, you can't, I wouldn't have thought, form that subjective belief in a case where credibility issues are quite apparent, unless you engage with those, right? So while you might sort of theorise that reasonable prospects is a is a higher test. I think in reality, if reasonable prospects is interpreted to mean that you can disregard credibility because that's a matter for the jury or a matter for the defence to sort of tangle with the trial, I think it might become a lower test mm. because you're not having that subjective, subjective engagement where you have to form a state of mind. So I find that a concerning aspect of it.
3: I, I can see some dangers in that analysis in terms of asking police officers to start... Making judgment calls about a witness's credit, uh, and we all have have known prosecutions where complainants or witnesses are people of compromised credit, but that doesn't necessarily mean there aren't reasonable prospects. So yeah. I can understand why Mr. Sofronoff downplayed that part and did quite a from a from a, a, a brief analysis. It was a very good way of approaching the issue of credit, and I it was very forensic and very considered. Um, but but I can see why he had that. Sort of concern about it, uh, and and just very briefly before I pass over to Felicity, that chapter three is dealing with the the handing off of the investigative phase to the DPP, and I I found that extremely useful. I'd, I had never understood clearly how that happened. Now obviously in this case because of the media pressure, there were in, there were different levels of internal review within the AFP that were instituted, which probably won't be instituted in our, in our main, in the trials that we do day to day because of the media interest. But it did show, at least to my mind, the rigour that the AFP went through in terms of assessing their case, double guessing it. They had case analysis documents, evidence review documents, and these are the documents that became much more relevant and which Felicity's going to talk about in terms of the duty of disclosure.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: so disclosure.
2: Yeah, thanks, Paul. So um, the findings um, by Mr Sofronoff in this um, part of the report are quite a u- include a quite useful uh, summary of some of the key principles um, in relation to what's called the golden rule of the prosecutor's duty of disclosure and which emerge from common law authorities, policies, practitioner, um, ethical rules. And I'll just sort of highlight two um, for the purpose of this discussion to kick off. Um, One, it is important for a prosecutor to bear in mind that the prosecution will not normally be aware of all the ways in which a defence might be formulated. For this reason, the prosecution should be very slow to decline to disclose material that might be useful to the defence. And then um, Sofranoff proffers this um, wisdom. Finally, wise and experienced prosecutors always adopt the rule of thumb if in doubt, disclose. I'm not sure how many of you in this room kind of encounter prosecutors like that, um, but I. Um, I I sort of wonder whether they're extinct, um, if not very rare.
0: So what material did he find ought to have been disclosed that wasn't disclosed? Yeah.
2: there were two categories. The first um, was investigative review documents. So these were documents that had been prepared by police officers involved in the investigation or overseeing the investigation and the second category of documents were counselling notes relating to Ms Higgins that contained protected confidences. So might just deal with them um, in turn because they raised different issues. Um, in terms of um, how Mr Drumgold expressed his understanding of his duty to disclose, um, he said that he had a duty to disclose everything that on a sensible appraisal of the case could impact on either a fact in issue or credibility relating to someone in the trial. That picks up some of the language of the ACT prosecution policy, but didn't capture the breadth of the way that the obligation is actually framed in that policy, which reflects the common law, as set out in the case of Reardon, which is a New South Wales CCA case, 2004 case. Um, Because that, um, it includes the language of sensible appraisal by the Mm. prosecution, but the things that are the subject of the disclosure obligation are, things that are relevant or possibly relevant to an issue in the case, things that raise or possibly raise a new issue, um, the existence of which is not apparent from the prosecution material, um, or thirdly, something that holds out a real as opposed to fanciful prospect of providing a lead on one of the first two categories. Um, So, something that might lead to some kind of other forensic advantage in cross-examination or other evidence that might be able to be tracked down. So, just the first category, these investigative review documents. um, There were three main documents here. The first was um, Detective Superintendent Moller had written an executive briefing note to one of his superiors and it was a decision-making document to help the commander, Commander Chu, decide whether the matter should progress or not, and if so, how. Um, and in that document, um, Detective Moller expressed the view that Mr. Lemon should not be charged.
0: So it was basically a litany of the credibility problems with Brittany Higgins in the police view?
2: Yeah, so attached to the document also included a review of the evidence that had been prepared by another detective, Detective Borman, um, which ident- name, which was called identified discrepancies and it included a scrutiny of 17 aspects of Ms Higgins' account, which investigators believed were inconsistent with independent evidence that they'd collected through the course of the um, investigation. So things relating to alcohol consumption, where she'd been drinking, the degree of her intoxication, the position of her body and clothing during and after the alleged incident, Um, her actions the following morning, also her unwillingness to provide her phone to investigators, inconsistent statements she'd made about medical advice after the incident, and which included that she admitted to investigators that she had lied about seeing a doctor, um, giving the explanation that she was trying to placate a friend.
0: And I think Shane Drumgold tried to argue, didn't he, that that was, you know, a document Uh, in the nature of analysis. It was sort of an internal analysis of evidence rather than sort of evidence itself and therefore was not disclosable, is that right?
2: So he had a few different reasons. The first was that it wasn't relevant and just remembering that the duty requires material that's either relevant or potentially relevant to be disclosed. Secondly, his reason was that the document had been created by a police officer who, quote, had misunderstood the admissibility of evidence and drawn conclusions about credibility and that the opinions of the police officer could not, on a rational assessment of the case, affect uh, affect an issue, as they were, were, quote, just a biased based stereotype opinion. Um, And then we'll we'll get to his um, other reasons relating to privilege. Um, He also um, gave evidence that he was concerned that if Detective Moller's executive briefing notes found its way into court, he thought it would be, quote, potentially terribly harmful um, or, quote, crushing to Ms Higgins and that it would, quote, um, inhibit her ability to engage in the trial. And Mr sofronov very quickly dismissed um, those reasons as not proper bases for a prosecutor to resist um, disclosure of documents. Um, but um, at the inquiry, Mr Drungold insisted that Um, he was correct to assess these documents as falling outside the scope of the duty. Um, I should say the third document was a document that had been prepared by an officer not involved in the investigation but who did a review of the investigation for the purpose of assessing whether there were other lines of inquiry that should have been made by the investigating officers. Um, Things like um, trying to track down the Uber driver that drove the couple to Parliament House that night and uh, things like that. In terms of Mr Drumgold's insistence that he was correct to assess these documents as not falling within scope, um, I think it's important to remember that the duty extends to inadmissible material as well, so it didn't matter that the opinions of the police officers were never going to be admissible in evidence. Um, They may still lead the defence to a relevant train of inquiry. alert the defence to an analysis that reveals a discrepancy that gives rise to a line of cross-examination of Ms Higgins in the trial, for example. Um, So
0: what's the sort of legal status, do you think, of this sort of internal working document? Because when I read that, I noticed that there had been some discussion within the AFP in their meetings with Drumgold that there might be a public interest immunity type claim that attracted to it because it's sort of their their internal consideration of their case. So, not that it was legally privileged, but there might be some other sort of immunity. Is that right, Paul? I
3: think they certainly did raise that. Um, it was raised on behalf of Mr. Drumgold, at least, but I, I do think the AFP set out pretty clearly that it didn't fit with any previously known category of public interest immunity. They'd never and, argued that before. And yeah. it would be a unique claim. Um, I think. It was said politely yeah. in those terms. Yeah. I, I mean, they
2: said very squarely, if we're subpoenaed for these documents, we don't think we can resist production of the documents. In other words, there's no claim of privilege of any kind mm. to be made over these documents.
0: Which is... It's sort of interesting. This is not exactly on the disclosure point in terms of the theory or principle, but the way that he resisted disclosure was... Seems on Sofronov's findings to construct a false claim of legal professional privilege. Is yeah, that right?
2: that's right. I want to get to that in a bit more detail, but yeah. first I just want to refer to Sofranoff's findings on the disclosure point and whether these documents were disclosable or not, um, because he rejected Mr. Drumgold's insistence that they didn't fall within scope. Um, he found that the um, notes by Detective Moller contained material which was capable of constituting a line of cross-examination relevant to Ms Higgins' credit. Um, that M- Detective Moller had not um, misunderstood the evidence that his opinions would never be admissible, but that did not mean that what he wrote was not disclosable. Um, that the analysis by Detective Borman would, without a shadow of a doubt, Mr Sofranoff says, have put the defence upon several trains of inquiry it would have identified weaknesses in the Crown case that might otherwise have been missed. And again, about the investigative review document, again, that that um, should have been disclosed.
0: I mean, it's something I find curious about that, is if you accept that the DPP's got the same disclosure obligation, if the solicitor in a particular prosecution is very diligent and sits down and does a sort of evidence matrix and works out the problems in their case, for the purpose of, I don't know, briefing the Crown and preparing the case, then that's got to be disclosed under this analysis, right? Mm. It's just an interesting notion in adversarial litigation. that
2: might be privileged.
0: That might be privileged. Yeah, that's key, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Because that would be prepared for the
0: purpose of advising the Crown in relation to the conduct of the matter. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So one of the quite curious submissions that Mr Drumgold made in the inquiry was that it was not surprising that there was no cross-examination of any witnesses about these documents during the Learman trial because they were entirely inadmissible, as if that justified the non-disclosure. Um, and th- that, I think, really misses the point in terms of the subject matter of the documents clearly was reflected in parts of cross-examination, for example, of the c- complainant. Um, so let's, let's turn to... Um, legal professional privilege. Um, Mr. Sofronoff's finding was that Mr. Drumgold had no factual basis to form the opinion that the documents were covered by the privilege, and no such opinion could honestly have been formed by a competent lawyer. Um, not, um, not holding back there. So, Paul. Um, the, the way in which the privilege was claimed in this case was quite interesting in terms of the preparation of an affidavit and the representations made by Mr Drumgold to the Chief Justice.
3: Are you going to drop me in the difficult yeah. part? <laughs> I thought we had agreed that I wasn't going to deal with the contentious material. But it, it, is, a, a, it is a really fascinating part of the, the report where Mr Sofronoff deals with chronologically how the claim of privilege arose and if I can speak very generally the AFP didn't seek to maintain or make a claim of legal professional privilege. When it got, when those internal briefing documents got to the DPP that's when the claim of legal professional privilege started to rear its head and one of the um, one of, the, one of the file notes that were taken by a DPP solicitor in a meeting between police and DPP was that Nate stated this, conversation with director afterwards, don't want to disclose AFP internal documents, not relevant. And I think there's two points to be made from, from that, is that relevance is commonly a seem to be a rebuttal to a subpoena to police or DPP. It's how could this document be relevant? How could it possibly be relevant to your defence that you are seeking this document? And I think that is a bit of a cultural or organisational mistaken belief that permeates many, both investigative and prosecutorial authorities, because I see it all the time. And I think it's also evident here from the director where he's He's just saying this document can't be relevant and, and what the report writer does is set out why those documents were relevant. Even if they could have been reconstructed by competent defence solicitors and barristers after the fact, it was still relevant to see what the police line of inquiry for, was. And that's when the issue of legal professional privilege began and over time it morphed into a purported claim by the AFP. That those sorry a a claim by the DPP that the AFP were claiming privilege. I think that's probably
0: the best way of yeah. something I it. find extraordinary about that is accepting or noting all of Sofronov's findings that Shane Drumgold knew there was no claim and that he deliberately advanced this claim notwithstanding. I find it incredible that in probably the most high-profile criminal trial in decades, which the AFP presumably was aware of, sitting in court, monitoring, that you can advance a false claim of privilege, that any such privilege would be their privilege, and they don't do anything about it. I find that extraordinary.
2: Mm. I mean, they, the, the correspondence and the meeting notes are so revealing. They clearly show that these documents were prepared for the purpose of communicating facts and opinions to a superior officer for the purpose of getting internal guidance about how to proceed, that they were no part of no part of the purpose was for legal advice or um, use in um, litigation that was contemplated. And I think one of the possible sort of readings of this is a failure to grapple with the different status of different copies of the same document. So the documents, or some of them at least, were provided to the DPP as part of the brief that was provided to him to advise on prospects of success and whether to charge. And so I think there's a, an argument that the copies that the DPP had possession of were privileged, but as the AFP legal team flagged expressly in writing, they possessed copies of the documents that um, weren't prepared for that purpose and weren't um, transacted for that purpose and so weren't caught by any um, privilege and yeah I think it's kind of worth thinking about obviously looking at the face of a document whether it appears to be privileged or not but also um, really examining the um, the provenance of a document and if you need to if there's an issue you know requiring the the maker of the document to come for cross-examination on what was their purpose.
0: Yeah, because the purpose is key, right? That's right. In terms of where the privilege attaches.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, so a few other things that we should touch on in terms of his findings, because, you know, they relate to to aspects of the operation of the system that that I think are pretty common. So there's some, some interesting stuff about media comment and prosecutors, which obviously is not that common, but it does pop up. So that arose in the circumstance where when Shane Drumgold decided not to proceed with the matter, he gave effectively a speech to the media. And he said a couple of things in the speech uh, that Sofronoff ultimately found were improper. He said in one part of the speech that he'd had the view that there were reasonable prospects of conviction and that he still held that view. Um, And Sofronoff said of that that uh, it was wrong factually because At that stage, he determined that Brittany Higgins could not be called as a witness. So, strictly speaking, he didn't have reasonable prospects. Uh, But he also found that it was a derogation of the presumption of innocence because in a circumstance where the accused was no longer accused, he was deprived of the opportunity, basically, to secure a not guilty. But he's got the prosecutor suggesting that he could have gotten a conviction. So he found that that uh, was a violation of his presumption of innocence and he references some things about the Human Rights Act. But I think more problematically or more seriously, right at the end um, of Shane Drumgold's remarks, he said words to the effect of that he was impressed uh, by Brittany uh, Higgins's courage and dignity and grace and that he hoped that she would now heal after this ordeal. And what Sofronov said about that was that that was effectively uh, an endorsement, a message of support for her, and an expression of sentiment or opinion that she was ultimately a victim and telling the truth. Now, I think there was some evidence about this inquiry where Shane might have suggested that she had been the subject of adverse media comment and social media commentary. She would need to heal from that, irrespective, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but Sofronov doesn't really engage with that kind of dichotomy. He just basically squarely says, look, it's a message of support, it's a suggestion that uh, she's telling the truth. And he sort of engages with the sort of first proposition, which is prosecutors don't make media comment, and then he engages with the fact that uh, a prosecutor can give reasons for decision in terms of a prosecution decision, and that's an exception to that normal rule that you don't comment, Uh, but basically finds that those aspects of the speech weren't reasons for decision, they weren't things that that he needed to say, and therefore they were improper Mm. um, in that sense.
2: Steve, can I just um, quickly raise something about the counselling notes and how they um, intersected with the disclosure issue? Um, So part of the background in terms of the preparation of the matter and the service of the brief was that there was some haste applied and normal processes that the police would usually um, use to prepare a brief for service were circumvented, Um, A result of which was that when the brief was served on the defence and the DPP, it contained Ms Higgins counselling notes, which included protected confidences. The defence returned those notes, not accessing them um, at all, Um, but Mr Drungold read the notes. um, And Mr Sofronoff was critical of that um, conduct and said that it put him in a position where he held information about the matter that the defence didn't have. Um, He didn't have to tender them to be able to use them or for it to impact or influence upon the way that he might run the trial and it was unfair because he had that forensic advantage and because of the statutory prohibition, he couldn't disclose them, having read them. Um, There were some um, solutions that um, Mr Sofronoff proposed if you end up in that kind of situation. The first Mm -hmm. was Mr Drumgold could have withdrawn, someone else could have prosecuted the matter, not tainted with that information. He could have brought an application for leave uh, to the court to obtain the notes um, in the orthodox way so that he could then disclose them or he could have supported a defence application for leave to obtain the documents. But um, the way that um, this issue was sort of dealt with by Mr Drumgold involved him not really turning his mind to the way that this intersected with his duty of disclosure. And so he didn't kind of perceive an issue that needed to be resolved.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, Another issue that arose was that uh, that related to, uh, so people probably know there was the first trial. Uh, There was a period of time that the jury was out that was quite considerable. Then the discovery that one of the jurors had taken uh, information to the jury room and the jury was discharged. On the same afternoon that it was discharged, Shane made a decision to proceed with the retrial. Effectively, the jury was discharged. They then went back into court and uh, he asked for a further date for the trial and it was listed for trial. And Steve Weibrow, who was appearing for the accused and I think this is is in evidence in the inquiry, he'd been talking to police officers and may have said it in chambers as well, uh, that the decision uh, as to whether there would be a retrial should have been outsourced, and he was suggesting to the police that Shane had lost objectivity and that uh, that the decision as to the retrial shouldn't occur straight away and possibly shouldn't be made by Shane. Uh, So Sofronov doesn't make a finding critical of Shane for proceeding with the retrial or agreeing to proceed with it. Uh, But it's interesting to note that uh, in New South Wales, the prosecution policy requires defence consultation. So if there's a hung jury or some such, then the Crown must consult with the defence about the retrial. That's not in the policy in the ACT, and Shane made this decision. I mean, it could have been a decision that he was making over a period of days as he was contemplating I suppose, the prospect of a hung jury, but it seems that it's virtually been made on the spot. And in circumstances where, you know, criminal lawyers will know how tough a criminal trial is, how expensive it is, what an emotional ordeal it is, it seems like a significant recommendation that Sofranoff has recommended that there be a new policy that looks at that question of consultation and that retrial decision. And it sort of raised to my mind this sort of question, I think, that hangs over the whole matter, which is... Shane was the DPP, Shane Shane Drumgold was the DPP, he appeared as trial counsel, it's an incredibly controversial trial involving, you know, some political issues, if not interference, that was obviously rejected, yet you've got the person who's the ultimate decision maker appearing as the combatant, if you like, in the trial, and then there's a hung jury and he makes this decision, it seems, on the spot to have a retrial.
2: Or discharge for juror misconduct.
0: Yeah, that's right, but makes the decision to have a retrial on the spot, which um, seems like an important recommendation, I think, by Sofrenov, that there needs to be that cooling-off period where you've got an obligation, you know, to invite representations. So another issue that uh, he looked at was uh, this question of... There was this, sort of this interesting... Um, analysis of this evolving tension between the police and the DPP, and Shane Drumgold forming these views that there's been political interference, and he was really put on the spot in the inquiry about what the basis was for having these suspicions about the police. He talks about a range of things, like the defence speaking to police officers, uh, police officers sitting in court near witnesses associated with Linda Reynolds, and these sort of things that in Shane Drumgold's mind has sort of fed this perception that the police are trying to achieve this outcome that they wanted, which was that he shouldn't have been charged through basically helping the defence. And that sort of culminates in in a direction during the trial from a senior AFP officer to all the police involved in the matter not to talk to the defence, basically. And then when the retrial is still scheduled scheduled to occur... Shane Drumgold writes, I think, to the chief police officer of the ACT and basically says, you've got to give them a direction that their involvement in this matter will just be attending court as a witness and they won't speak to the defence. Now, that obviously engages this sort of cardinal ethical rule, which is there's no property in a witness. And as a practitioner, particularly a prosecutor, you can't conduct yourself uh, in a way that undermines that. So, for example, normally, you certainly can't tell prosecution witnesses not to speak to the defence because that undermines that rule. So I think Sofronoff. I think he makes a recommendation. He does, yeah. Felicity, that the ACT
2: he? police formulate a protocol to affirm the desirability of police witnesses being available to legal representatives for the defendant and that should reflect the principle that there's no property in a witness. And also he recommended that the allocated prosecutor should be kept apprised of all communication between the ACT police and the defence. Um, What I found particularly troubling about this was that the direction was in relation to essentially professional witnesses, because they were police officers, and like, say, experts or other um, professional-type witnesses, you would expect that they have the integrity to speak to um, either side, frankly and honestly, and answer any questions um, that Either side has so yeah. It was it was quite revealing. I think that not only did the DPP um, insist upon this uh, exclusion, but also um, that the police acted on it um, themselves and and gave this direction. Yeah.
0: So the last of the key findings that I wanted to talk about that I think provide a sort of interesting lesson is. Uh, There was a live issue in the trial about Linda Reynolds, who was Brittany Higgins' boss, and she was obviously a senator at the time of these alleged events and then at the trial. So there was a live issue in the trial about what Higgins had said to her the very first time Mm. that she spoke to Reynolds. Because
2: it didn't contain any complaint of sexual assault.
0: Yeah, so Brittany Higgins said, and this was a key part of the Crown case, that she had complained of that to Linda Reynolds. Um, and Linda Reynolds is evidence at the trial, at least, and I think it's sort of changed in the public domain since, but her evidence was that there hadn't been discussion about sexual activity, let alone sexual assault. So that was a key issue, I think, in the Crown case, because they obviously were seeking to advance the earliest possible complaint. So an issue arose about, I suppose, the accuracy and reliability uh, and credibility of Linda Reynolds. And Shane Drumgold sought leave to cross-examine Linda Reynolds and ultimately put to her that she had a political interest in the matter, that she'd arranged for her husband to sit in court, that she'd texted Steve Wybrow and asked for copies of the transcript. And ultimately, Shane made a suggestion to her that she had tailored her evidence and or sought to tailor other people's evidence in order to advance this agenda that she had. So this issue arose about were those suggestions that Shane Drumgold put to her supported by evidence and were they proper in the circumstances? Mm. And there's an interesting discussion in there about, you know, the obligation of counsel to have a reasonable basis for what you put and also an interesting discussion about the distinction between asking if something occurred in a sort of open-ended way uh, as distinct from, from you putting in a direct way that something did occur And there's this quite unfortunate sort of portion of the evidence where Shane tries to repeatedly suggest that there is no distinction there and that it's basically the same thing.
2: Mm.
0: And, um, yeah, that was not met with receptive ears Mm. by Sofronov.
2: And as a defence practitioner, mostly the basis for putting propositions to a witness um, will come from instructions from the accused. But sometimes those instructions can be quite vague or only sort of give you some maybe basis to open... answer... sorry, ask an open-ended question rather than put a positive proposition to a witness. So I think it's quite important for defence practitioners to think about as well. Mm. Um, And obviously we're, for the most part, doing most of the cross-examination where you're tending to ask leading questions and and putting propositions, but... um, I think it's also worthwhile thinking in that context that sometimes the more powerful evidence can be adduced in a way, in mean, cross-examination, where you do ask an open-ended question. You're not putting yeah. a proposition.
0: So he talks in there, Sofrenov too, about how there is this important distinction between something you put as a direct proposition and something you just ask as a question. Uh, but he makes the point that if you're talking about an allegation of serious misconduct or a scandalous allegation, then sometimes there effectively is no difference. Like, there's no difference between saying, are you a pedophile, as opposed to, you are a pedophile. You need a basis to put either. Uh, But if you're putting things that relate to the trial and things that might relate to the course of events that relate to the allegation, it is an important distinction, because if you start to put that certain things happened, the jury or whoever the tribunal of fact is is probably going to infer that you've got a basis for that. Mm. Um, And
2: you might, for example, have some information or from your assessment of all of the evidence available to you that a prosecution witness has a presentation consistent with, say, some kind of delusional beliefs or consistent with maybe some kind of condition that bears upon their credibility, but you don't have a report that says they've been diagnosed with a particular condition, for example. So I think in that kind of scenario, um, if you've got that basis, I think you'd be entitled to ask open-ended questions, but not kind of put a proposition, Mm. like about a personality disorder or something like
0: that. Yeah, I think that's right, that's right. So, Paul, what do you think all this says about reform of prosecutions? What are the the overall important lessons, do you think, that might lead to reform or should lead to reform? I think that's a, a
3: difficult question because I think this case was so unique and I'm not sure that the pressure applied to prosecutors in most cases will expose the fault lines. What the report does for me personally is it first of all pulls the sheet back on, on how an investigation and a prosecution works. There are two issues for me which um, I'm going to carry forward from from this report. The first is Section 4.4, Duty of Disclosure, is just one of the most simple uh, and um, quite pithy uh, recitations of the Duty of Disclosure. So there may not be a reform globally, there'll be a reform in my practice, Stephen, because it's such a fantastic description of the effects on trials and the potential for miscarriage of justice where disclosure doesn't occur. And there's, Actually, I just wanted to raise one final issue, if I could, and, and that is, there was a, a really significant, there's a number of significant ethical issues that arise in, in this, but one of them was the treatment of a, a junior practitioner, mm. and, and it's something that, um, it's not the subject of any reform, because it was quite personality-based. But he, Mr Sofranoff sounds an alarm for all of us, and I think the alarm is both as people who are managing younger practitioners, or people who, like me, work in organisations who are subject to the supervision of, of more senior practitioners. And it's at paragraph 419, and I'm, with your permission, I might read it out, even yeah. though it's yeah. at length. Um, it's always the tradition of Australian barristers and solicitors that while giving due and appropriate respect for a practitioner's experience, we are all, however, equals when it comes to the actual practice <coughs> of our profession. And that means that junior practitioners, even very junior practitioners, should not regard senior practitioners as having a monopoly or a veto upon how barristers must conduct themselves. Each of us is obliged to maintain ethical standards, although sometimes it can appear professionally risky to take objection, and as the present affair shows, the risky course is to do nothing when a colleague is engaging in malpractice. Um, I'm not sure that I see that on a day-to-day basis, but I'm sure organisationally, malpractice does occur, and I'm sure we put young practitioners perhaps at risk um, of not feeling confident enough to speak up about that type of malpractice. Um, Even though it's not a recommended reform, it's actually one of the most starkest examples uh, that arises from this report, and it's actually one of the things that I'll carry with me as well. Mm -hmm.
2: And just for context, the, the background to that was that, in the context of the legal professional privilege claim, Um, Mr Drumgold instructed the most junior member of his team, a newly admitted solicitor, to swear what Mr Drumgold knew to be a false affidavit, claiming privilege, Um, and having sidelined another more senior colleague who had queried the basis for the claim of the privilege. And Mr Drumgold provided the wording to his junior colleague um, in um, correspondence, and then also um, misled the Chief Justice about um, the basis of the claim on um, the provenance, the true provenance of the documents and so on. So, um, yeah, I think it's something for people to be reflective about in terms of, especially in fast-paced litigation, you know, swear this affidavit, do this, um, or um, as someone who's more senior, th- you know, thinking about, the
3: obligation that you have to your colleagues, um, particularly junior ones. And Can I just jump in there and just remind myself that there are judicial review proceedings pending Mm. in relation to these, Uh, and so I I just just wanted to sound that warning that these findings are final, pending judicial review, and it might
0: be that things come from that. Yes. So Flick, what's your view on the systemic reforms Mm. to public prosecutions that might flow from this or relate to this?
2: Yeah. Look, I think that there may be a temptation to treat this case as exceptional as one involving a rogue prosecutor sort of outlier case and dismiss the report as shedding no light on criminal justice issues more broadly and in other jurisdictions. But I think to sort of indulge that temptation would be a missed opportunity because I think there are lessons from this report that can be learned and translated across the country. I think we really need to grapple with um, and confront the cultural problems that we have in our criminal justice system in relation to disclosure, because the degree of intransigence um, and lack of self-reflection that was... Um, apparent in Mr Drumgold's insistence that he um, didn't breach his disclosure obligations um, although you might have expected his representative at the inquiry a, an experienced prosecutor himself to have counselled a more kind of tenable position but um, I think that does... Who was represent. his counsel at the inquiry? <laughs> He's been mentioned earlier today in passing um, so so uh, I think it is indicative or another indication of how culturally entrenched the breach of the duty is. Um, And, you know, it's rare to have a case pulled apart with such granularity and for so much of the behind the scenes action to be revealed. And so I think um, that's quite a useful exercise for practitioners um, and members of the public to be able to see kind of how, how the sausage is made. Um, or shouldn't be made. Um, One of the recommendations that Mr Sofronoff made on disclosure was that it should be codified in the ACT statute, the common law rules should be codified. I think that's something um, that would be a useful reform in other jurisdictions and um, you know, training guidance, particular guidance around how disclosure certificates should be drafted and how documents should be described on the disclosure certificate so that the defence can meaningfully know what, what they're not getting um, because of some claim of privilege or something and, and can mm. litigate that if they need to.
0: So the thing that I found kind of scary about all this was I started my legal career in the ACT and I worked at the DPP for a number of years there. And after I came to New South Wales, or when I came to New South Wales, I would often reflect on the higher quality of justice in the ACT and the higher quality in a general sense of prosecuting.
2: Mm. Which was all conducted by the DPP. Yeah,
0: and I always put that down to the fact that in the ACT, you know, everything from traffic to murder uh, is done by lawyers of the DPP. And you don't have the presence in the system of police prosecutors who obviously, you know, normally are not legally trained, aren't subject uh, to professional ethics in the same way, don't have um, a prosecution policy that's public and available, don't apply the same tests... And
2: are not independent.
0: ..are not independent of operational police. So I just find it terrifying that when the bail was lifted on this trial that there were shortcomings that I think are much more severe than might occur in New South Wales in many trials. Mm. So it's scary, but it made me think in terms of systemic reform that if this is what happens when you've got highly trained lawyers appearing in cases, how is it that we endure this situation in New South Wales where 95%, I think, um, of criminal matters are conducted by the police? when none of these applicable, sort of ethical um, and regulatory, if you like, standards are truly Mm. applicable. Mm. Uh, So that's sort of the lesson to me. that
2: Abolish police prosecutors.
0: Yeah, that's certainly my view. I mean, it's obviously a big sort of issue Mm. and there's expense and everything and how you do it, but there's a lot of power in the hands of the New South Wales Police when they conduct all of these prosecutions that... In terms of abuse of power and, you know, the respective position of the state and the citizen, I think is quite concerning. And I think an independent prosecutor is really a human right Mm. that is part of the rule of law and the fair trial. And the power of the prosecutor in this case shows it. I mean... You know, Shane Drumgold was able to stand up in open court and make a false claim of privilege and not Not be held to account until there's this huge multi-million dollar inquiry into Mm. it. And that, to me, speaks to the power and authority of these people. Mm. Um,
2: Their status.
0: Yeah, and when power's abused, it's extremely Mm. dangerous. Mm. So there's one last issue I think that we should talk about, which is the leak of the report by Sofronov, because it's just so interesting. But I think it also flavours... The way that the report has been received in the media, and this has obviously been a divisive issue, and you know, depending on the sort of political hue of the media organisation, you see it interpreted in quite different ways. And I've spoken a lot to lots of different people about this in the ACT and here, and often the way that these things are interpreted depends on sort of who they are and their worldview. And so this leak, I think, is interesting because it it, it provides a way for people who don't want to accept things that are in the report to delegitimise it, yeah, I think. absolutely. Um, and, you know, Sofronov has admitted publicly that he provided the report to two journalists prior to giving it to the Chief Minister, and there's been an issue about whether that might be a breach of the criminal offence provision in the Inquiries Act, uh, which talks about not providing copies of documents that are obtained in the course of an inquiry. I mean, my view about that was his conduct wouldn't seem to be captured by the criminal offence. It seems that provision is talking about documents that are obtained under compulsory process. Mm. But he certainly seems to have breached the scheme of the Act, which, you know, provides for him to prepare the report, the Commissioner to prepare the report, then to provide it to the Chief Minister, who then has to make it public or not within a certain time frame. So certainly seems to have breached the scheme of the Act at least. So what do people think about what implications sort of flow from that?
2: I just think it's quite unfortunate... Because I think it's, it's ultimately a distraction and people should um, read the report, digest it um, for what it is and, and not focus on the mode in which it came to light publicly, especially in circumstances where it was inevitably going to become public. The whole purpose of the inquiry was to show transparency and shine a light on what had happened and reveal that to the public. Uh, so, it's so been speculated,
0: though, that that he leaked it because he feared that it wouldn't be made public.
2: Yes, or that certain parts of it wouldn't be made mm. public. Yes, I have heard that. Um, the other thing I think that's worth sort of just factoring in is Mr. Drumgold has made a complaint that he was denied procedural fairness in the in the way that the report was leaked, um, but. I mean, if you read the report, it attaches um, many other documents, including the adverse notice um, that were provided to various people who, where where there was a proposal to make adverse findings um, against them. And, you know, he was given advance notice and an opportunity to respond and he did. He made lengthy written submissions in response um, to what were foreshadowed
0: to be adverse him. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure how he's arguing procedural fairness in his uh, the proceedings that he's just filed, but I think I saw in a report in The Guardian that he's making a bias sort of argument in relation to the inquiry, and I sort of speculated whether maybe he might be suggesting that the leak might somehow mm. sort of give rise to some apprehension of the bias. evidence of
2: bias.
0: Yeah, which is interesting. Mm. Um, have you got any thoughts on that stuff, no, I, d- I did want to say, at risk of never being invited back, um, I- I'm
3: not going to express an opinion <laughs> on, on, on the leak, um, the propriety of doing so, or whether it was leaked or not, or any type of bias claim. I just, I haven't looked at that issue, mm. and I just don't feel confident speaking about it. I'm very sorry, Wiggs. That's all
0: right. So I don't have that sort of restraint. I, um, <laughs> I just find, that, like obviously media relationships are very common in the law, and often it's very legitimate that a lawyer would be speaking to journalists and the way that media portrays a case might have a dire effect on your client. You might sometimes have an obligation to engage. But when you move into this kind of objective role or judicial role, I would have thought that stops. I don't know if that's completely naive or not, but I would have thought that stops, that you don't leak to journalists anymore. Yeah. You don't even speak to them, maybe it's social functions or something. Yeah. Is that horribly naive or...?
2: I mean, I think that that's pretty orthodox <laughs> as an approach. I think most lawyers, whether they're judicial officers or not, most practising lawyers are scared of journalists and won't speak to them, mm. even where it might be in their client's interest too.
0: Mm. So, yeah. yeah.
2: And
3: for a very good reason, if this claim is made out, mm. the, one, the one of leaking, that is, mm. you know, delegitimizes the... Yeah. Content of the report itself.
0: Yeah, I it's like, don't think it's a claim. a claim. Like Sofronov has, has told the Chief Minister that he provided it to The Australian and to the ABC. Yeah. yeah. And he did it on an undertaking from them both that they wouldn't publish until would it released, was made public. That's right. And then News.com, which I think is owned by News Limited but is not the same as The Australian, they then ran a story that contained. That contained it and then I think the ABC then broke the embargo on the basis that it had already appeared on Mm. news.com and the Australian Mm. so I mean he hasn't stated his position on why he did it except to say that he did it Um, anyway it's just a curious sort of aspect of the matter
2: Mm. do we have time for mentioning one other thing Just in terms of remedies, practical remedies for breaches of disclosure, I mean in the context of an actual criminal case you've got your temporary stay, your subpoena to check disclosure, costs, um, cross-examining the police um, to reveal the issue, um, and then separately maybe complaints to the Legal Services Commissioner or to the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission or their their equivalents in other jurisdictions. But I just wanted to mention um, a recent district court case in which Judge Curtis, Um, awarded $730,000 to a young person for claims of false imprisonment, malicious prosecution um, and misfeasance in public office, including substantial aggravated and exemplary damages. And those claims all arose in circumstances where the officer in charge had deliberately withheld exculpatory COPS, capital C-O-P-S, which is the New South Wales um, Computing Database um, entries, which included records of the complainant saying that sexual activity, the subject of the charge, was consensual. And the judge found that the OIC's conduct was so egregious that it can only be explained by improper motives and so found malice on that um, basis. And there were sort of circumstances relating to bail being opposed and how long you spend in custody as a result of these representations um, made by police and the, the misleading of courts without including that kind of material in the... The factual basis for bail determination um, and I, I, one of the other things that I think really um, jumps out in this case is that the cross-examination of the police officer on his duty of disclosure really revealed um, the common ways that it is illegitimately rebuffed um, so um, he was asked about why he didn't disclose the entries and. He said, well, according to her, she woke up with Jack sexually assaulting her. That isn't consent. In other words, this, the, the, op- the second version that she provided um, in her statement was that there wasn't consent. And the questioner said, um, no, but she said in the statement earlier um, that she did consent. She told someone that answer, yes. Question, you didn't think that was important? Answer: so once I took her statement, and I was satisfied that the issue had been resolved, Question, so because you chose not to believe a version, you chose to conceal it? Answer, absolutely not. Question, well, why didn't you reveal it? Answer, we don't produce re- police reports in briefs of evidence. Question, but you are asking the DPP to launch a prosecution without knowing about this information? Answer, I placed all relevant information I felt were forwarded to the DPP. And then it goes on and on and um, what you're telling the court is that you made a conscious decision to withhold that evidence in the cop's narrative, and so I simply did not see the relevance of, and then his honour jumps in and says, I find that answer strange, you said that you didn't think it necessary to comply with your duty to provide all possible evidence, and so yes, it is my duty to supply all available evidence. Question, you agree that you were in breach of your duty in not giving this evidence to the plaintiff? Answer, no, because my understanding is that they wanted that evidence, then you subpoena it. Um, Question, hang on, don't you understand your duty independently is to provide all exculpatory evidence? Answer, I don't recall at what stage the DPP were aware. Question, you're not answering the question. Um, Did you not understand that it was your duty to disclose exculpatory evidence? Answer, yes, it was. Yeah, it is my duty. Um, And I think... Once you actually get someone in the witness box, you can often reveal their complete lack of understanding of their, um, of their duty and that that can be a really powerful way of demonstrating um, the breach. And
0: I don't know if he didn't understand it. He said he had the duty to disclose all <laughs> relevant evidence.
2: Yeah. yeah. I, I mean,
0: think I've... it's just a twisted, self-serving... Sure interpretation. I was just going to
3: say, if you if you want to know more about cases in relation to disclosure, there's this fantastic podcast called Five Cases, <laughs> which is uh, broadcast through the Legal Aid Criminal
0: Law Division podcast channel, and we'll deal with cases such as that.
2: Sorry. No, that's great,
0: Paul. Love a bit of um. So, Karen, is there time for questions? Are we, at yeah. uh, time, yeah. Any questions?
3: Queenslander, um, and I qualify with in my experience, so um, no-one can accuse me of being defamatory, but there's been no cultural shift mm. in the duty of disclosure in Victoria. We still have to issue subpoenas and we're getting material that wasn't initially disclosed,
0: so do you think this will have any real effect, this report will have any real effect on the duty of disclosure um, in the ACT or New South Wales?
2: Mm, so that was a question about the Lawyer X scandal and um, the questioner's perceived um, lack of a shift in the culture. Certainly in rank and file, there are some diligent prosecutors who are very good, but rank and file police,
3: I haven't seen a cultural shift in their understanding or or, or their... um,
2: Implementation of the principles. yeah. Yeah,
0: I would have thought that a cultural shift, it's certainly not going to occur uh, in circumstances where uh, a police officer can give evidence like that in a civil trial, which presumably was the end point of a process of pleadings and exchange of evidence and so forth, where a police officer c- you know, can give evidence like that that just seems to be untruthful. Mm. And I bet there's been no sanction for that. I'd be amazed if there's well, been a sanction a for that. a
2: thirty thousand dollars sanction on yeah. to the state, but yes what has been sheeted home to that police officer, what lessons have been learnt?
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the relevance of disclosure as part of the criminal justice process, I would have thought there's ample policy justification for, you know, the enactment of a criminal offence that applies, and you'd have to obviously carefully craft it because there's a lot of grey lines here, but in circumstances where you're investigating and proceeding with a sexual assault investigation and you've been given a version from the complainant that he or she consented, and you withhold that, I mean, I would have thought the first question is, why isn't that an attempt to pervert the course of justice? And if it's not that, because of, I don't know, some technical issue about mental elements or something, should there not be a criminal offence to cover that conduct? I mean, we criminalise so many regulatory things and ample amount of things in our society, but that sort of conduct that's so socially harmful, harmful to a person, harmful to the administration of justice. And there's not, there's not a sanction for that. I, just, I think we need to get a bit more serious about this stuff.
1: Uh, just going back to what you were discussing at the beginning about the test for charging, uh, is the solution to the conundrum... in in the analogy with a magistrate's uh, obligation to commit for trial and a judge responding to a no case to answer at the Crown case in the sense that the test is essentially if a jury could convict, you commit for trial or you you refuse the no case answer, but if the Crown case depends on the evidence of a witness that has been so severely discredited that no jury could believe that witness, then you don't commit for trial. You, 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 so that, going back to that element of the, the common law test, um, the requirement that you have a subjective belief that you believe the evidence that could amount, could create the charge, has that same exception. Because a person has mental health problems and might have some credibility problems, if you are still able to believe them, then you are permitted to charge. But if the witness has been convict- convicted 400 times for fraud offences and is an absolute inveterate liar, then you simply could, that would be quite improper to charge in those circumstances. Is that the way in which the test operates, do you think?
0: In terms of how it actually operates, I don't think that it operates that way. And I think this, uh, this formulation of reasonable prospects of success rather lends itself to not having consideration to those things. But I think it certainly should operate that way because I suspect we've all done cases where you know, there is protruding credibility issues that if any rational person engaged with them, you know where this case is going. And obviously that's a grey line as well. But I just think when you're talking about such a serious exercise of executive power that has such disastrous consequences for people, you cannot have a system where there's no subjective engagement with issues of credibility because that just leads to abuse of power, leads to cases proceeding that just should not proceed, that don't have prospects. Mm. Um, And that's my sort of criticism of the way I suppose that Sofronov has not incorporated this question of reasonable and probable cause that has got a subjective element. And it's very relevant to a lot of the public discussion going on at the moment about the way that sexual offence prosecutions are being conducted in various jurisdictions in Australia. Mm. And on one side you've got this allegation uh, that Me Too has somehow infected the system and all these hopeless cases are running because they're of that cohort. And then on the other side, which came up in the ACT as part of the general discussion around this inquiry, you've got this suggestion that police are undercharging and that police are damning complainants' credibility in ways that has recourse to bias and so forth. So it's very contested, and it's important, I think, to acknowledge that, but I just don't see how you can have a system that operates on all the principles that we accept where you can turn your face away from credibility as a prosecutor because, sure, some things are for the jury and some things are for the defence, you know, to make things of. But at the end of the day, you're the one taking the case. Mm. And some cases that are doomed to fail, they shouldn't be run. Mm. And I think that analogy with the test that magistrates um, have previously applied is a really good one, where you have to turn your mind to, is there a real possibility of a jury doing this, which requires you to grapple with credibility in an extreme case? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in practice, particularly with um, sexual assault type cases, many decisions to kind of maintain proceedings, setting aside charging for the moment, is on the basis of deference to the complainant wanting to proceed um, and let the jury decide. And I mean,
1: there's been a huge cultural shift in the last decade.
2: Mm. But I think to, to answer the question about whether you should maintain proceedings as a prosecutor solely by reference to those two factors is, is quite wrong. You have to do your job and engage with the case more meaningfully than that. Uh,
0: any other questions? Oh, there's someone up there.
1: Making me run. Back to the um, topic of how to encourage uh, proper disclosure. And the suggestion was made about criminalising inappropriate non-disclosure. And I'm very sympathetic to that, but it seems to me that experience would suggest that that's only then going to result in a criminal charge in the most egregious of cases. You would hope that has a deterrent effect which Mm. might flow through. But I wonder whether a a simpler solution might just be costs orders. Certainly in Queensland where I practice there's no costs ramifications for improper disclosure. And I would have thought knowing police who are essentially public servants, they get very embarrassed by that sort of thing.
0: Mm.
1: And I wonder whether that's a better, simpler legal solution. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, and it's interesting in New
0: South Wales that, as I understand it, there's no power to order costs against any party in relation to a subpoena, which in a way is a good thing for the accused because... In criminal proceedings. In criminal proceedings, yeah, you sometimes have to put in multiple subpoenas and sometimes you lose them and there's no costs, uh, consequences. But, yeah, it's an interesting idea as a remedial kind of factor where there's been a breach of disclosure that there'd be a cost order. I'm not sure, I mean, you'd have to think about how quantum would be worked out. So how would you work out what portion of the proceedings has been extended by it or something like that? But there needs to be a sanction, I think, more of a sanction.
2: More robust sanctions.
3: Just speaking anecdotally, I know police prosecutors in New South Wales have an unofficial way of dealing with damages in malicious prosecution cases in the local court. And that is for every hundred dollars no every thousand dollars of damages, they put ten dollars into the Christmas drinking fund. And that doesn't sound like a lot, except when you are talking about some of the damages claims that are being made in New South Wales local and district courts. The the personal pecuniary penalty that's being unofficially opposed is it's actually really interesting. I listened to them talking about it at the gym and and they talk about who their their opponents are and how much they're going to have to put in. So that sort of that's a ridiculous example. It's never going to be instituted, but it does show at least informally there's some sort of recognition by the police, even in a silly way, that there must be some sort of personal responsibility by prosecutors at least, where they're bringing prosecutions that have no basis. Um, it's it's a simple example, but and. But, It wouldn't flow anywhere other than three local courts that I know have instituted it. Three local commands, I should say. But that's enough to have police prosecutors talking about it at the gym. Then then that's a deterrent effect.
2: Mm. One thing I do worry about, though, is we don't know what we don't know. And uncovering a breach of disclosure is... Um, sometimes very difficult to do and we don't know how many miscarriages of justice have occurred where there's been grave breaches of disclosure that just have never been revealed. And I just sort of wonder whether criminalising it might make it go even more underground or cause police officers not to make notes of conversations and things Mm. like that. So I
0: I think another way is there's powers that exist in the DPP Act for the DPP to issue guidelines to the police, mm. uh, to the police commissioner, and there's a power for the police commissioner, I think, to issue guidelines to police. Yes. And so, for example, a simple example, if, if you're charging someone with an allegation that relies on an eyewitness or a complainant, it's very simple, I would have thought, to put that person's name through the COPS database. And you will immediately have access to all the information that the police have on that person. Now, I've done numerous cases where you issue a subpoena for every COPS event that relates to a particular witness. You know, you get three folders of material, long interaction with the criminal justice system, long criminal record. And that stuff has not been disclosed. It was on the defence to basically do that. Now, that would seem to be an immediate breach of the obligation of disclosure. Now, the police officer investigating the case might not have known about that, right? And the prosecutor might not have known about that, but they're imputed with the knowledge of that material because it's possessed by the police. So if you had a guideline that simply said you must interrogate the databases that you have for information about a person that you're relying upon, I mean, that would transform, I think, this field of disclosure. It would transform it. Mm -hmm. Now, what it also does is undermine the state's capacity to convict people, I suppose, probably arguably might extend, extend court proceedings in some sense, and I think a lot of police and prosecutors would see that as them doing things that is the defence job to do. But all of those responses I think just bring to mind the need to transform the culture around disclosure. If you're going to put forward a witness as a basis that a person should serve a custodial sentence, be convicted of a criminal offence, you've got to give up the information that you know about that person that's adverse to them. That is not the system that we have across Australia. Any other questions? Okay, let's wrap it up. Quick clap.
2: For listening, please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mint.